Well, keep your Bibles open to Mark uh, chapter 6. This morning you might think about this church. Maybe if you looked out the, the window this morning, instead of seeing blue sky, you saw an alpine uh, meadow around you. Maybe this church being situated in an alpine village deep in the heart of a, a beautiful, rugged mountain range far from modern civilization. And certainly you would be out of cell phone range. And you were tasked this morning with getting everyone off that mountain. This body, you were now tasked to lead us out of the church and back to civilization. And besides using a guide, which you could use if you were there, but maybe they're not there, you only have a few tools at your disposal. You would really only need a couple things. You would need a good compass, you would need a good map, maybe a bit of know-how. And by analyzing the terrain around you, you'd see that mountain and this mountain and that and this. You would notice where you are on the map. And then once you determine where you are on the map, you set a compass course for where you want to go. And so you strike out in that way. But here's the thing. When, when you have a compass in your hand and you're wanting to go a direction and you look down at your compass, God has designed us by the fact that if you're right or left-handed, one of your legs is slightly stronger than the other. And so you will always walk in a general slight arc. Now you're still got the compass pointed in the right direction, but if I was trying to go through those doors, I'm going to have to walk straight through those doors. If I am slightly this far off, I'm not going to go through those doors anymore. I'm still going that direction, but I'm off. I've seen it before. I've even done it myself where I'll just be staring down at the compass, walking along, going, I don't want to go this direction. And then maybe a few minutes, maybe even a few hours later, I look up and go, where in the world am I? The compass said I was going this the whole time. The only way to do it is to sight a point. I want to go that direction. There's a big tall tree right there. I'm going to walk till I hit the tree. I'm going to go to the other side of the tree, sight another point, and walk that way. That keeps you going in a straight line. Well, we are on this Christian journey this morning. We're on a journey that is guided along by Christ, but on a trail that can oftentimes be very difficult, that can be very strenuous, hard to determine where the path might be. And if we fail to keep our eyes on Christ, looking at both who He is and what He's done, we're going to begin to drift, drift over into all sorts of sin. We begin to exchange a fear of God for sinful fears of circumstances or people situations or to-do lists, deadlines, relationship difficulties, and, and the like. And Mark 6 this morning stands as really a lighthouse, shining brightly into the fog of our hearts and guiding us back to truth. The truth that all our sinful fears, every one of our sinful fears, are resolved when we look to Christ. That because Jesus is the Son of God, Looking to him will resolve all of our sinful fears. To help us understand how this passage directs our eyes to this truth, we're going to look at beginning in point number one. You might be taking notes. If you're taking notes, point number one, remind us how, we're looked at, how, how, how we are to look to him. Point one, found in verse 45 through 46. Fruitful ministry is rooted in looking to God in prayer. Fruitful ministry is rooted in looking to God in prayer. If Jesus is God and looking to him resolves all of our sinful fears, how do we look to him? 
We look to him in prayer. Fruitful ministry is rooted in looking to God in prayer. You look in your Bible you're there, you notice in verse 45 of Mark 6, immediately, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. As we've been studying uh, the book of Mark, we would have, you will have remembered that one of Mark's favorite words, a key word even, is this word immediately. But here in verse 45, it's used in a way that seems to make very little sense in the context of this chapter alone. The corresponding chapter in John 6 to what is happening here in Mark 6 helps us get a better understanding of the scene. You might just turn over in your Bible a few pages to John 6, 14 and 15. John 6, this instance, is following the feeding of the 5,000, just like here in Mark 6, 45, following the feeding of the 5,000. John 6, 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign, the sign being the feeding of these 5,000, that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The, the great multitude, 5,000 men, women, and children on top of that, uh, were pre- preparing, in a, in, a, in a sense, to seize Christ and make him king. And I don't think you can really blame them all that much. I mean, here they have just witnessed a man feed 5,000 people. Just 5,000 men. They they have witnessed or heard stories of him uh, healing people, calming the wind and the waves, and, and thereby has the power to stir up wind and waves, bringing people back from the dead. Can you imagine what the people must have been thinking? were under Roman rule, there could be no one better than this man to be our king. They can't kill us because he can raise us from the dead. We run out of food, no problem. He creates food. We need water, he brings it to us. They're thinking, this is the messianic king we've been looking for. Let's seize him. Let's move him into position as king over us. But Christ knows that the time is is wrong and the intentions are ill-placed and he makes, back in Mark 6, he makes, maybe even forces physically the disciples into the boat. Now, no doubt the disciples were enjoying this situation immensely. I mean, think of the popularity here. Think of what they'd just seen. They'd seen all this food come out of the hand of Christ by his blessing upon it. But Christ puts them in the boat and sends them across to the other side. Now, when we think of the, the Sea of Galilee and its geography, later on today, you might turn in your Bible and look at a map or something. They weren't going all the way across from the farthest point to the other side, the longest way across. They really were just sort of jumping from one tip of it to the other tip, just, just a really short little trip over. He's sending them over. He's going to come be with them soon. The disciples really, in many ways, needed to get into the boat. Christ, knowing that these men would have added quite a bit of emotional fuel to the growing desire of the people to crown him king, just simply by the great detail they could have offered to the crowd of what Christ had done with five loaves and two fish. 
And we've noted before in Mark the opposition to Christ and how he responds. And he does the same here. He retreats to be alone with the Father, to spend time in prayer. We see here the example of a praying Christ. Before his ministry in the wilderness, he prays. Before choosing his disciples, he prays. In the garden, before his death, he prays. On the mountain, he prays. Christ, one with the Father, always about the business of prayer. And specifically, in many ways, private prayer, as we noted here in this passage. Christ praying alone. And for us, even, we would note that solitary prayer, solitary fervent prayer, is really the greatest measure of one's commitment to prayer. If you're thinking about your prayer life this morning, when's the last time you had a substantial time amount of solitary, alone, private prayer with the Lord? Now, there's nothing wrong with praying in a group. There's nothing wrong with praying at church. There's other ways to pray. But how's your private prayer when no one else is looking, no one else is watching, no one else is knowing even that you're praying? How you, how's your prayer life? Let's model Christ here. We might ask the question, well, what did he pray up on this mountain? Scripture gives us some indi- indication. Thy will be done in Matthew 6. He prays for his persecutors in Luke 23, for all the believers in John 17. He gives thanks and praise to the Father in Luke 10. He prayed for his disciples in Luke 22. And and no doubt, even maybe, he's praying for his disciples now on this stormy sea. The imagery of of the Bible helps us to understand in word pictures, if you will, the Christian life. And this text gives us a very vivid picture. picture. A picture of the early church, even, that depicts the church within the boat. The disciples in the boat, the church... As a, that, that, that picture of the disciples in the boat being a picture of the church. Us, sent out by Christ, on mission for Christ. And then Christ, either in the boat or coming to the boat, caring for his disciples. Christ coming for and caring for his bride, the church. Christ who's in control of the wind and the waves that crash against the church seeking to capsize her, and yet the foundation of that church not being anything but Jesus Christ, her Lord, her Savior, her husband. Jesus Christ, our Savior. 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And what a picture it is for us today, seeing these disciples on a boat, on a battered sea, on, on a sea, battering this boat, knowing that Christ, our mediator, interceding for us, FCF, as his church. His bride, in the midst of whatever storms we may have going, he sees us, and he's interceding for us, as he sees the disciples on the boat, in the boat, on the sea, in the midst of their stormy times, interceding for them. A great encouragement for us this morning. It's been said that the only safe place and indeed the safest place for us is on our knees before the Savior. There is no safer place than on our knees before the Savior, even in the midst of a stormy sea, on our knees before the Savior. Prayer should be a high priority in our Christian life. We talked about that in first light this morning. We see the root of Christ's ministry being prayer, fellowship with the Father, And for us, the root of ministry, in fact, the basis of a long-term fruitful ministry is rooted in looking to God in prayer. 
over the years uh, at FCF, if you've been here since the beginning or just even a few years, you would know that we have made personal and corporate prayer a high priority and emphasis at FCF. And I don't know what happens in the private prayer room of your own homes and your own private prayer life. And I don't know how that pertains to the health of your prayer life. But the question, the question should be asked, if we see here the example of a praying Christ, how does our prayer, private prayer lives and then our corporate prayer lives measure up as a model? While thinking through this passage, I was convicted in my own life of how little my prayer life imitates the example of Christ. What about you this morning? Is it modeling Christ? If not, let us be quick to repent of our sin as we did even in our prayer of confession this morning and move in repentance toward a stronger commitment to prayer. Let's begin even this morning as we minister to one another to commit to praying for one another during this week. Before we go out to our jobs tomorrow morning, are we going to pray that God would ordain all the events for, of the day for His glory? Children, before you begin your school tomorrow, stop and pray and ask the Lord to bless your time of study. Prayer keeps our hearts calibrated to the will of God. And it keeps our attitude compass pointing in the right direction, upward toward Christ. Christ modeling for us the truth that a faithful prayer life or the lack thereof is the measure by which one can know who they trust, who they trust, and are leaning upon in this life. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, because Jesus is our high priest, let us look to him faithfully, consistently in prayer. Point number one, fruitful ministry is rooted in looking to God in prayer. Point number two, the presence of Christ calms turmoil. The presence of Christ calms turmoil. Mark 6, beginning in verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. In studying this passage, there's some question here as to how Christ saw the disciples struggling as mentioned in verse 48. Verse 35 tells us that the 5,000 were fed when it was getting late. We're not sure what time it was. Verse 47 tells us that it was evening and Christ was on the land. And so there's some different ways to interpret it. Some presume that maybe Christ saw them struggling while it was still dusk. 
and spent time in prayer and then came to them while it was dark? Maybe he saw them not necessarily physically, but but as a manifestation of his deity. Maybe he could see them physically across the water under a moonlit night. We're not sure how he saw them, but irregardless of how, he noted, Christ noted the difficulties of the apostles of making headway painfully against the wind. And he comes to them. And it's helpful for us this morning to note the all-knowing, all-seeing, caring nature of Christ displayed to us in this passage. He knew the disciples were having difficulty. He saw their difficulty. He cared about their difficulty. And here in a few minutes even, he ultimately comes and resolves their difficulty. And that Christ has not changed a bit. He's the same Christ for us. He sees Christ even now, sees our difficulties. Whatever it is this morning that you're having difficulty with, Christ sees that. He's well aware of it. And he secured for us the promise to help by placing himself in the greatest of all difficulties, directly in front of the full brunt of God's wrath against sin and us as sinners. And he takes that sin, he took that sin upon the cross and gives us his righteousness. He conquered sin and death. Demonstrated, once again, demonstrated that conquering by rising again from the dead. So I'm not sure of your personal turmoil this morning. I'm not sure of your difficulty or struggle, but I can promise you that Christ is well aware of it. He is no different than the one in this passage, the Christ in this passage. He is well aware of the fact that on this side of heaven, this world is marked by turmoil. Whether it's man versus man, man versus nature, woman versus man, husband versus wife, child versus parent, parent versus child, whatever it is, This country full of turmoil right now, the upheaval and the mockery that is our political system, it's it's about as clear of a picture of turmoil as we can get. So if it's turmoil in your marriage, the truth is that Christ not only sees, he has all power to do something about it and will do something about it if we will turn to him. If it's turmoil in the voting booth, the truth is that Christ not only knows, he has all power to do something about the turmoil. Think of it. No matter what happens on November 9th, Christ is still ruling and reigning. He's the one who set them up and he's the one who will take them down. He's the one who's still going to be comforting the church. He's going to be the one who's still calming the seas that the bride, his bride, this church and his church rides upon. Let us not uh, forget as we look at this passage that the rough seas were not by accident or mistake. The apostles weren't under some punishment for some secret sin that one of them had committed and so he he shoves them out onto the sea and says, take that as punishment for your sin. They hadn't rebelled against Christ and simply said, you want to walk? We're taking the boat. It's faster, it's easier. You do your thing, We're, we're going on the boat. No, they hadn't done that at all. In fact, the disciples are here fighting the sea out of obedience to Christ. They got in the boat. Christ puts them in the boat. They go out in obedience to Christ. And they come against this sea. Consider the alternative of their disobedience. If they would have disobeyed, they could have been maybe in a warm place that night with a stomach full of fish and, and bread they would have had some comfort and pleasure. And in, in comparison, their, their hard rowing 
maybe as many as eight hours with a, a sea and a wind blowing such against them that has blown them three to four miles out of course with a sea that's only three miles wide and seven or so miles long, being blown across the entire sea. But if they had disobeyed, they would have missed out on seeing the power and authority of Christ that they're about to see. And for us, for us this morning, what is, more diff- what is more important to us, our comfort or obedience to Christ, no matter the pain and the difficulty? Let us, let's, not, let's not fall prey to a, a prosperity gospel and thinking that obedience to Christ will bring us comfort. That's a false gospel that always fails when difficult times come along. Never produces hope and peace. Obedience to Christ is what brings us peace. The only way to peace is obedience to Christ, to peace that passes all understanding. The kind of peace that guards our hearts and minds according to Philippians 4. But we're never promised comfort in this Christian life. Never. Church history speaks of it. Eric Little in a concentration camp in China. Jim Elliott or Nate Saint in the Ecuadorian jungle. Or Gladys Alward in the mountains of China. Or the imprisonment and torture of the Apostle Paul. And on and on and on. And yet scripture tells us, let's, let's not forget that this slight momentary affliction, whether it's affliction, whether it's suffering, whether it's difficulty, whatever it is for you today, and certainly for the apostles here, that has come by the way of obedience to Christ, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Christ is, is more than worth the discomfort. Christ is worth the suffering. He he took upon himself for you discomfort and suffering. Suffering even to the point of death. Death upon a cross. That you might have eternal rest in the arms of your dear Savior Christ. I don't know about you, but what is just a, a few years of suffering or turmoil? Maybe even a life of suffering and turmoil in comparison to the eternal glory of being with Christ in heaven forever. No more pain, no more turmoil, no more suffering, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more sadness, no more suffering, no more contention, none of it, gone. Are we willing to trade a few hours, a few years, even a life for that? Why can we do that? Why can we have that promise? Because Christ has come for us as sinners that he might display the glory of God as we see pictured here in Mark as he comes to the the struggling apostles on the sea, walking to them on the water. The The Christ walking on the water is our Christ. The Christ that will go to the cross is our Christ. Mark tells us that it's the fourth watch of the night. This this would have been three to six a.m., so it's, very, it's quite early. The disciples, as I mentioned, may have been rowing for as much as eight hours. And so Christ comes to them walking on the sea. And I love the way Tom read that a few minutes ago. He gave it great influence. He gave it great weight. Walking on the sea. We shouldn't gloss over that statement. 
This is a display of the deity of Christ. It's, it's, it's almost as if Mark just says, oh yeah, and here's four little words at the end of a sentence, walking on the sea. He walked on the sea. Peter walked for a few feet, the corresponding passage in Matthew, but Christ walked on water. I don't know about you, but I've not seen that. I think it's interesting, the phrase, he meant to pass by them. It's not indicating that he changed his mind and went, oh, you guys caught me. I'm trying to sneak around you and the wave went down when it should have gone up and you know, he caught me, yeah. No, that's not what he's meaning at all. Meaning he meant to pass by them. It was his intention to pass in front of them, for them to see him, to see him in all his glory, to display his deity that he is fully God. Mark 4, 41, following the calming of the storm by Christ, the disciples asked the question, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And they were sent out and they did miracles by the power of Christ and yet they didn't know the answer. Verse 52 of this passage in Mark 6 tells us that even Christ, after Christ fed the 5,000, they didn't know the answer to the question of who then is this. They didn't recognize Christ for who he really was. The son of God Fully God, yet fully man. As he displayed for them his deity by walking on the water, it was a terrifying sight. They think it was a ghost. That Greek word for ghost is phantasama, meaning the appearing of a spirit or apparition. You know, historical accounts tell us that even, even at this time, sailors as they have throughout history attributed the sea with evil spirits. And so the apostles cry out, and the Greek word for that cry out is, is this shriek of terror rising from the depth of the throat. It wasn't simply like, oh my, there's someone walking on the water. It was an absolute terrorizing account, screaming in terror. Look with me at your Bibles in verse 50, middle of it. I want you to put your eyes on the text. I love this next phrase in the middle of verse 50. For they all saw him and were terrified, period, but immediately. This this relationship of sheer terror and immediately, by his word, Christ bringing peace to their souls and to their situation by speaking to them. The word of Christ confronting their fear and ours with authority and power and comfort immediately. He didn't let them wallow in their terror, immediately speaking to them and comforting them. Take heart, it is I, or be of good cheer, as the King James tells us, or take courage, as the NASB tells us. Christ has used this phrase throughout his ministry. Take heart, it is I, Matthew 9, 2. Matthew 9, 22, Matthew 14, 27, Mark 10, 49, John 16, 33, Acts 23, 11, Christ appears bodily to Paul and says, take heart, it is I. And Christ could speak these words of comfort because he's the fullness of God, the exact imprint of his nature, according to Hebrews 1, verse 3. He's the one who in Psalm 29, 10, sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. 
The one who rules the raging of the sea in Psalm 89.9, stilling the waves when they rise. The one foretold in Psalm 77.19, whose way is through the sea, his path through the great waters, yet with footprints unseen. The great I am of Exodus 3.14, speaking from the burning bush. He alone who stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number, according to Job 9. He is Christ, the one who, according to Colossians 1, 15 through 17, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things together. Christ, the one who created the very water he is walking on for his glory and the good of the apostles and for our good this morning, bypassing the limit of his creation to display his unsurpassing and unmeasurable power in his deity. Since Jesus is God, he can calm all turmoil. He can resolve all our sinful fears. Tom noted, and it's the truth here as well, and he creates reverential fear. And for the believer, when we hear his voice, take heart, it is I. It is the most comforting sound we can hear. And for the unbeliever, it is sheer terror. Because Christ is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate. We can look to scriptures like Isaiah 41 as the church, as the new Israel, and claim the promise. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you who I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. For I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. That promise has been secured for us by Christ. Your Christ. He is the only one who has the power and ability to secure such a promise. To be able to say, fear not, or take heart, or take courage. It is I or as John 16, puts it, I have said these things to you that in me you, have, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's so mind-boggling at times and, and frankly quite frustrating how so quickly we take our eyes and they dart from looking at Christ to our surroundings. Our hearts move from fear of Christ to fear of man or, or our circumstances. Anxiety comes about this or that. But whatever our turmoil is, whatever your turmoil is this morning, will you look to Christ? 
Because he alone is the only one who can bring peace to that turmoil. He alone is the only one who can resolve your sinful fears. The person of Christ and the work of Christ is the source of calm that your soul is looking for in the midst of difficulty. And don't sin by going to look for that somewhere else. It is hopeless. He alone is our hope. I think it's interesting here that just in case someone might doubt the validity of such an amazing story that this man could walk on water. He tells us that all saw him, all 12, or at least those that were witnessing this miraculous power in the boat, all of them saw it. And to prove that Christ was not some ghost or imaginary trick, we're told in verse 51, and he got into the boat. A ghost doesn't get into boats. He floats, I guess. I don't know how they do it. Into boats. But a man gets into a boat, climbs over the side. He's not a ghost, he's a person. He's fully God, yet fully man. Point one, fruitful ministry is rooted in looking to God in prayer. Point number two, the presence of Christ calms turmoil. And lastly, to help us fully understand the truth that because Jesus is God, looking to him will resolve all our sinful fears. We come to our third and final point found in verse 53 through 56. Because Jesus is God, there is no limit to his power. Because Jesus is God, there is no limit to his power. Look with me at the text, verse 53. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the friends of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Starting in Mark 4, verse 35, if you remember, when Christ calms the storm, many of the elements between Mark 4, 35, and, and Mark 6, 53 through 56... Many of the elements of the work and ministry of Christ make cameo appearances in what we just read from 45 to 56. Um, you might think of one of those little sponges that you can buy that are really shriveled up and they're dehydrated and, and you take them and you throw them into some water and the water, once hitting it, just makes it kind of blow up. You know, it just little shot of water and the whole thing expands way beyond the size that it originally was. It's like they're, they're, they're almost supercharged. And the previous elements from Mark 4.35 to now that are, all in them, that are all in this passage, it's as if they expand immensely. They're supercharged. For example, he calms the sea with his word in Mark 4. But here in Mark 6, he overpowers the sea with his whole person, not just his voice, his whole person by walking on the water. Mark 5, the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years is the first recorded in Mark to to touch the garment in faith for healing. What has happened in Mark 6? Many, many, many touch his garment and are made well. It's as if the writer Mark preparing to close out a section and we are at the end of a section of the narrative in Mark. He's doing everything he can to call our attention by way of crescendo to the magnificence of our Christ. He did it, he did it this way before but he can do it so much greater here. He healed, he healed this way one time but watch him do it in an immensely greater way over here. 
And so it's no wonder that the people here in 53 through 56, wherever they heard he was, out of desperation, bring the sick on their beds to his presence. They're desperate. They're desperate to have their loved ones, their friends, their family, those that were sick healed. And it must be asked about you this morning, us this morning. Are we desperate for Christ this morning? And if so, we can come. We can come to Christ and find rest and comfort for our souls. And by way of application for evangelism, are we gonna be those this week who bring sick people to Jesus in prayer and by way of the proclamation of the gospel. Recognizing that he alone is the only one who can heal their sickness of sin. And the desperation is displayed by the mere desire to touch even the very edge of his garment. The truth being that even the slightest brush with Christ is enough to save. To come into contact with a little bit of Christ is to come into contact with all of Christ. All his power. And these people were not desiring to hear the words of life. There's no indication of that. They were looking to him as a miracle worker. But they knew they were sick and they knew they wanted to be healed physically. They wanted to be healed and had faith that if they could but touch his garment, they could be healed. We see the grace and mercy of Christ here on display as he ministers to their physical need. But I want us to note, watch carefully, it's grace and mercy by Christ in the face of the knowledge of illness. And that's important. Because it can be extremely discouraging to think about our sin. And we do that on Sunday mornings here. But if we don't see our sin, we have no reference for the immensity of his grace and mercy and love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we confess our sin on Sunday mornings as difficult as that is at times because in doing so, we recognize afresh his great love for us. In our sin, to look anywhere but to Christ to save is sure and utter death. So do we see our sin? Do we recognize our illness? Do we recognize If you are a sinner that is not saved this morning, if you have never put your faith and hope and trust in Christ, do you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a savior from the wrath of a just and righteous God who has promised punishment for sin? And if you recognize that, then what is to be done? In closing, November, Numbers 21 tells us a story about God's chosen people, the Israelites. And the Israelites, as they travel on the way to the promised land, as they come along, they sin, all of us being born in sin, they sin in a way that we so often do as well. They rebel against God and we rebel against God. And when they rebelled against God, God justly and as promised punished their sin with death. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor, they sent out, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. They rebelled against God. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We load this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. 
And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a certain serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now listen very carefully. John 3, chapter 3 of John, verses 14 and 15 tell us this. And Moses lifted up in the serpent in the wilderness. So must Christ, the Son of Man, be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus Christ was lifted. If you've not committed your life to Christ, Jesus Christ was lifted up on a cross so that you and I could look to his saving work and be saved. What what do we do with our sin? We do the exact same thing that sick people did in Mark 6, verse 54. They looked up to Christ. They reached physically for Christ. And we reach by faith, in faith, recognizing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the lover of sinners, the Savior of the world, that he alone can save us from our sin. And we are saved when we put our trust and belief in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to save us from eternal punishment. And that trust and belief is then, is then modeled, is then seen by turning away from your sin in repentance. If you've never trusted Christ this morning, then scripture says that today is the day of salvation. You can be saved today. There is, there is no turmoil of sin in your life that Christ cannot save. Today you can be saved from your sin by the blood of Christ spilled for you on Calvary. And I would encourage you today if If you want to know more about that, just turn to someone in the pew next to you and talk to them about it. They would love nothing more than to encourage you of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the good news. And if you don't want to talk to somebody next to you, I'm at the back. Come talk to me after the service. I'd love to share the good news of Christ with you. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, because Jesus is God, Looking to him will resolve all our sinful fears. And I trust that by his mercy and grace, we might all look to him this week and see afresh his loving care for us. What a wonder is this passage. What a sweet mercy is Christ that always guides us straight and true as we keep our eyes on him walking, navigating this world of trouble. Let's pray. Father, if you were, if you had sent your son to be simply a man, a man that maybe could do a few miracles, defy gravity every once in a while, do this or that, we would be as those that have no hope this morning. But you did not simply just send a man You sent your son, fully God and yet fully man, to be the savior of the world. To be the propitiation of our sins, for our sins. And you gave him all power and authority and dominion. All things held together by Christ. And Father, we... Rejoice to know that as 
believers in Jesus Christ, as we look to you, we are conformed to your image. We are conformed to the image of your sons. We look to Christ. We're conformed to Christ. We give you glory in that way. We develop a greater reverence and love and awe of you, our God, and the fears of this world that are sinful melt away. Father, grant us grace to look to you, the one who leads us and guides us. In Jesus' precious name we pray.